Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here from Roots Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. I want to thank you for joining us for this week's message. We are wrapping up a three-week mini-series based on more modern stories of people who have lived out God's purpose to the full extent that they knew how to. The first week we talked about Eleanor Young, who got the nickname Bad Legs because she was crippled almost from birth at a very young age because she got polio, and how she still was able to overcome that and go into New Guinea and spend 18 years in the bush as a missionary there. Last week, we talked about someone named Brother Andrew who was um, just burdened with the with the idea to go and help the, the, the struggling, dying churches that were all across Europe. He began to smuggle Bibles into areas where they were not legal to be owned um, in their native language, um, and he was just all over the place. He drove across borders and was smuggling Bibles in a lot of places. He smuggled one million Bibles into the nation of China in one night in 1981. It was called Project Pearl and just some great stories so far. Today what I want to do is I want to take a look at um, three quick stories of people who are kind of more modern times in the 17, 18, and 1900s who uh, really responded to the call of the gospel and the Spirit of God in their life and just gave themselves fully to um, becoming a disciple and what that really means. Before we jump into their stories, I want to read you a quick passage of scripture, though, Luke 9, 57 through 62. And this is what it says. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to even lay his head. He came to another person. Come uh, Come follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, first, let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first, let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus said to him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read this story through my Americanized Western lens and filter of the world, I looked at it and I thought, man, this is kind of harsh. Why in the world would Jesus not let somebody go bury their father? Why in the world would he, you know, why would he say you can't go say goodbye to your parents, you know, or your family before you left to come follow me wholeheartedly? And so I did what we really teach here is which we um, don't just try to take a, you know, pull out a couple of scriptures or just one at a time. I went back and read the entire chapter. So the week and a half before this happens, Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's taken the loaves and the fishes and he's just fed a multitude of people. Many of those people were so impressed by the miracle that they just continued to follow him as he moved on from city to city over the next week or so. Eight days after he does that miracle, someone brings um, 
a child that's demon-possessed to him, and Jesus cast the demon out of the child. And then, as they're moving on, the disciples are arguing about some things, and he settles the arguments, and he's... Um, so he has been um, kind of in full effect from the miracle end for a long time before they get to this place. They're, they're moving from town to town. They're taking the message of the good news of the gospel everywhere. And as they're, uh, so all that's happened in the backdrop. So you've got people here who have seen him do mighty, mighty miracles. You've got people who have said, I'm going to you know, follow you because of these miracles that you've done. And you know, inevitably, some of them have dropped off over, over time. He has people who have, who have seen him cast a demon out of a little boy. And, and they're just amazed by that. They've seen uh, him act in wisdom with all of the, the responses he's given to the disciples. And as they're walking... There's this person who cries out where Jesus can hear them and when um, and where, where it can be recorded for Scripture. And he says, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. He kind of makes like a big old, bold, like loud statement. I don't know if you've ever been to a concert where someone waits for like the like a, a silent part in the song or the in-between songs before they scream out, you know, I love you, you know, to whoever, or they scream because they want to be heard or whatever. And that's kind of the my own mental picture that I see here, but it's kind of a, you know, there's some similarities here because there has to be a lull where Jesus can hear somebody scream this out. And that's all the guy yells is, I, I, I will follow you wherever you go. Just this big, bold, blanket statement. And then Jesus, as he's walking, is like, well, be careful now. Be careful what you commit to because I don't have a place to stay. I don't have a home. I don't have a roof over my head. And if you're going to commit to this life of following me, there is a cost. Once I started to see that that was Jesus's message to these people, was that there's a cost to doing what I say. There's a cost to following me. Even uh, Solomon in Proverbs says, uh, no one builds a house without first estimating the cost because they don't want to spend all their money on the foundation and the walls and not be able to put a roof on it, you know? So Jesus is saying, hey, before you just make these big old bold proclamations about what you're going to do, let's make sure you're counting the cost. He looks at another person. I didn't really think about this until actually yesterday where he says, come follow me. This is exactly what he said to the disciples. He said this to Peter, James, John, Andrew, Matthew. He said this to all of them. He said, come follow me. Drop what you're doing and follow me. And they did. He turns to somebody else, to this man, and says the exact same thing that he was going to say, that he had previously said to the disciples that are following, come follow me. And the guy goes, ah, yeah, I want to, but I got something to do first. And he's saying, look, if you're going to come follow me, you're going to have to weigh this out. There is a cost to this. And the person says, let me go home and bury my father. And, you know, if we just think about that one statement, you go, well, well, that would make sense. Go bury your father before you come. This is like a once in a lifetime event. But my next question was, is why was he there in the first place? If his father had died, why is he not with his family, with his mother, with his brothers and sisters consoling them? There's more going on here than just a cold-hearted, you got to follow me. There's a lot more going on. There's other conflicting interests that are in this person and the next person that says, I'll follow you, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. What Jesus is saying is like, don't commit to this and then go back. There is a cost 
to following him. There is a cost to live his purpose. And you're going to see the heart of three people specifically that um, kind of that lived in more modern times who made that commitment. They weren't recorded in scripture. You know, they're not the, the apostles or anything like that. They're, they're not famous because I had never heard of their names before. I, I got into my study over the last several weeks. And, but what their commitment level to Christ was is astounding, inspiring, and if I'm honest, it's convicting. The first person I want to tell you about is a woman named Betsy Stockton. They think she was born in the year 1798. The reason they think she was born there and not that they're not convinced that she was born there was because she was born into slavery and there was no written record of her birth. So as they went back when she got a little bit older and looked at some of the things that were going on in the world that she could remember during that time, they concluded that they think that she was born in 1798. She was born into um, a man's home who was their slave owner, um, and uh, she was a uh, she was it's, it's kind of an odd thing to say like this because because of our modern view of you know, slavery and how that all worked. But um, this slave um, named Betsy was given to the slave master's daughter as a gift. Um, But his daughter, Elizabeth, and Betsy were very close to the same age, and they were very close friends. So on the surface, it looks like, oh, he just, you know, just gave her like a piece of property to um, to his daughter because, you know, um, f- because of all the, the ideas about slavery and around the people who were enslaved. But what he did is he actually said, I'm going to give you the person that you're closest to to kind of help you work going forward. Um, she, w- she went with Elizabeth uh, when she got married to Reverend Ashbel Green. And she lived in the Greens' home, and that was a very good situation because the Greens were abolitionists. They really want; they were really worked hard to fight against the idea of slavery in the United States. They made sure that um, that uh, Betsy was was paid properly, that she wasn't receiving you know lower wages. They really went out of their way to try to treat her as if um, as they would want to be treated. Not that she was a slave, but just as a friend. Um, Several years after Elizabeth married um, Dr. Green, uh, she passed away. And um, but uh, but Betsy stayed with the Green family going forward. Um, Right before Elizabeth passed, the the law for abolishing slavery was passed, and um, but it was not granted immediately. It was granted gradually, and even after she got uh, Betsy received her freedom, she decided she wanted to stay with uh, the Green family. Well, Reverend Green was um, a very intellectual man, very smart. He served at the as a U.S. House of Representative for a while. He was a pastor, and then he was eventually elected as the president of Princeton University. Yes, that same Princeton University that you know of that's popular today. He um, he saw Betsy's desire to 
um, to, to be educated because there was laws in place where you couldn't, you know, give a certain level of education to slaves and indentured servants. But he made a way for Betsy to go to night classes so she could kind of catch up on the very basics of education. She learned how to, you know, improve her reading and her writing over that time period. But just so happens that during that time frame, there was a massive Christian revival going on at Princeton University, and many of the people got saved and gave their life to Christ, and this includes Betsy. She came home and told Dr. Green that she had given her life to Christ, and she had this overwhelming uh, burden for missions, for discipleship, for theology, and so um, Dr. Green allowed um, Betsy to have access to his massively extensive library of theology books. And she just began to read them and consume them and pour over them hour after hour, day after day. And she just loved the knowledge of learning more about um, the study of God. Her friends who would go to classes during the day that she wasn't allowed to go to would come back and would give her the information that she was missing because she wasn't allowed to be in the in the seminary at that point. And so here she is basically getting this massive education without even being forced to go to the classes. And when she applied for a missions work, she was one of the more educated people that they had on their roster. She wanted to go to um, she wanted to go to to Africa. She felt a, a, a strong pull for that, but the missions organization that she was a part of would not allow her to go. Not because she was a slave, but because um, or that she was previously a slave. It was because she was unmarried, and they didn't want to send single women into the mission field by themselves. They wanted them to have a husband. She didn't know what to do, and so she ran across some uh, another married couple named Charles and Harriet Stewart. Charles and Harriet were a married couple that had a young, a young baby, and they were approved by the mission board to go to a mission field that we were that at the time was referred to as the Sandwich Islands, which in modern times we know them as the islands of Hawaii. They were approved to go there, and they knew she wanted to go. So kind of as a workaround to that rule where she couldn't be a single lady going by herself, they said, well, we're going to go, and she is our nanny. She's going to help us with our child, and so we need her to go with us. And the agreement was that when you got there, that she wouldn't have to, you know, she was paid for her for her services as she as she helped uh, make the trip, the trip and the journey and helped take care of the children. But she was allowed to, as soon as they got there, go do whatever she wanted. And as she needed some help, she had this support. So they found a, a workaround to the rule. When she agreed to go to the Sandwich Islands or the islands of Hawaii, they were in the city of Philadelphia. Now, I'm not sure if you're good with geography, but Philadelphia is all the way on the east coast of the United States, kind of more towards the northeast portion, north of Washington, D.C., and south of New York City. She had to make that trip with this young family without cars, without uh, airplanes, without any modern technical advancements in the area of transportation. And they had to go from one side of the country all the way to the other side of the country and then get on a ship that would take them all the way out to the Hawaiian Islands. That 
was a massive effort. That was a massive physical task, a massive commitment. It took them five and a half to six months to make that journey. Think about taking almost six months just in travel so that you would have the opportunity just to even start the opportunity of being a missionary in a foreign place. As soon as she got there, um, she established an education system because education was so important to her based upon her history. She really felt like I need to teach people how to read and write first so that when they read the Bible, they can read it on their own. They can write notes and, and papers about the Bible so they can understand it in a clearer context. She went and within the first 18 months, the first year and a half that she was there, she had already educated between seven and 8,000 people about Jesus, the message of the gospel. She spent um, so much time teaching them the word of God that the people, the natives that were there in the land began to realize that that the moral ethics that she was teaching from scripture were having a real impact because they saw a dramatic decrease in drunkenness. They saw a dramatic decrease in gambling, which was prevalent on the island. And they also saw a dramatic decrease in something that was very tribal at the time in that area, which was infant sacrifice. People who participated in those things, after hearing the gospel, they dramatically reduced those things in that area. She spent another year and a half there, a total of three years, and eventually the tropical climate that a lot of people love if you've ever been there to to experience it yourself you know they like the, the the climate it's not you know too cold or whatever but that that um tropical climate actually had some uh, caused some adverse health effects for betsy and she couldn't physically stay there any longer and they sent her back to philadelphia that's another five and a half to six month trick to get home She eventually made it there, but when she got there, she continued her love for education, and she wound up establishing schools in Philadelphia and Princeton, and she was actually invited to Canada to set up schools and education centers where she taught people to read and write, and then immediately after that taught them scripture. The local officials that would come by and and, and check to see uh, if her schools were running up to the standard or up to par of what they wanted their, their education system to look like were completely astounded every single time they came into Betsy's schools because she was so much more effective. She had such a better process. The schools were had so much better results than any other schools that they had that they had reviewed she was um, uh, held in high regard because of that and here you are with this woman who's overcome slavery overcome being told no um, overcome a lack of education had to find a workaround for to even get to the place where she could go and tell people about Jesus, had to come back because of a health concern, couldn't go back to the mission field, and right where she was, established schools, and was the best at what she did. This is the inscription on her tombstone. 
of African blood and born of slavery, she became fitted by education and divine grace for a life of great usefulness for many years. She was a valued missionary, and afterwards, till her death, a popular and able principal of public schools in Philadelphia and Princeton, honored and beloved by a large circle of Christian friends. I, that right there is such a great description of a life that is well-lived for God's purposes, how she invested herself to become the absolute best, overcome all the obstacles, the, the cultural obstacles, the, the legal obstacles, the ministry obstacles, the health obstacles, to still do what was in her heart to do. And then on her tombstone, it talks about divine grace, Christian friends, um, how she was a missionary, and how she was a teacher. She wrung everything out of her life that she possibly could. She lived God's purposes for her life. The second person I want to talk to you about is Eliza George. <clears throat> she was born in 1879 in Texas, and she was an African-American young woman who was born not as a slave, but to parents who were slaves and but were emancipated. She was raised up in the church and the knowledge of God, and she got saved, really saved, at 16, and she just dove um, just like our, just like Betsy in the first in the first story, she dove into education and she earned her teacher's diploma at the uh, when she attended uh, the Central Texas College, and um, then she went on to further education to get her teacher's certificate. And immediately upon graduation, that Central Texas College hired her to be a teacher because she was so wildly effective at it. In 1911, uh, as a member of the staff there at the, at the school, she would meet for prayer meetings, and the, the whole point of the prayer meeting was to pray for other nations um, and the people in other nations who hadn't yet heard the gospel, and uh, to just begin to intercede and pray that they would have, um, that they would have someone to go to them. During those prayer meetings, she really felt this strong burden to continually pray and intercede for the nations of uh, in Africa, she wanted to go there, and so she applied to another missions board, who again told her, "No, you are a single woman. We're not going to send you out there as a single woman." But she decided to continue on with that um, with that desire and trying to figure out a way to that she could go where she wasn't by herself for two years. Two years. She sat there and continued praying with the, with the desire of going to the mission field in her heart, trying to get to Africa to, to share the gospel with the people there. And there were times where she would intercede and pray all night long. She said that she prayed so much for the people of Africa that, that when she eventually got there, she just already had this bond between them. It was almost like the spiritual bond that, that God had kind of birthed in her through this burden to go and take the gospel to the people in Africa. One night when she was praying, she had a vision, and she said that she saw all of these people from tribes in Africa stand in front of the, the throne room of God, or, or through the throne of God, and went at the end of, uh, at the judgment time, and they looked at Jesus and said, no one told us even that you were real or what you did for us. No one told us. 
And that right there gripped her heart and she knew I have to find a way to get there. She would write poetry and one of the lines in some of, in one of her poems that really grabbed me is she said this, my African brother is calling me, hark, hark, I hear his voice. And here's the line, ready? Would you say stay when God said go? Would you say stay when God said go? She could not. And so she, uh, two years later in 1913, left Waco, Texas for New York, where she um, connected with six other people who were going to go do missions work in Africa. And um, she went with, she specifically chose the nation of Liberia. Liberia is um, just uh, beneath Sierra Leone on a map if you're looking for it. And she had to get, again, without any modern technology, you know, and, and, and travel advancements and things like that, she had to get uh, from Waco, Texas to New York pretty far and then get from New York all the way out to the, the coast of Africa to begin her work. But she did it. Um, Eliza and another missionary, when they got to Liberia, opened up the Bible Industrial Academy. <clears throat> when I saw that name, I thought it was interesting because um, notice that she didn't just go there to give them the good news and then walk away and not tell them how to implement it into her life. So what she did is she also taught them life skills. And, and then the principles, taught them about the good news of Christ, the principles and the moral ethics laid out in Scripture, and then taught them a skill that they could use for their life and that they could use in service to other people as well. Within the first two years, she had 50 children attending her academy and more than 1,000 people accepted Christ in the nearby villages in the country of Liberia. She, um, I want you to notice the, the similarity between Betsy and Eliza's story is that they didn't just show up with a, with a, you know, a hot meal, a pat on the back and a quick little prayer. Hey, Jesus loves you. Give your life to him and then disappear. They were fully invested because they weren't, they were not called to go make converts. They were called to make disciples. There is a level of discipleship that is reflected in this mission work that needs to grip us today that we need to commit to in our own life here and if we ever wind up in a place on the mission field. Five years after getting to Liberia, the mission organization that um, was sponsoring Eliza's work went under. Can you imagine... Um, uh, not having anyone call you because there's no technology to do that, but waiting to get your support whenever it comes and, and you go to try to pick up your support if it's food or money or whatever, and then they give you a letter that says, hey, um, yeah, there's no more money coming, no more support coming because, uh, yeah, our organization went under. Can you imagine the how lonely that felt to be out there with no backing? But then to realize I've given my life to do all this, but I haven't had anyone who has been able to, or I haven't had, um, I've only been able to, to have this because of the backing that I had, and now that's gone, and I'm alienated out here, almost like I'm on an island. And word began to spread, but that her, her mission organization folded, 
But she decided, I'm going to stay. God is going to provide something for me. And not too much, um, not too long after that, Charles, a British missionary and a doctor who was also working in the nation of Liberia, told her, marry me. Let's get married because if you're if you're um, if you're my wife, then these these things that we're doing can be funded by the organization where I'm from. I'll just kind of tell them that hey, we had another opportunity to open these things, and um, and that I married someone who was running these other mission works, and it folded. So just continue to support us, and you'll support both of these. And so she wasn't very sure. She spent several months in prayer, and then finally came to not understanding through her prayer and got peace from the Spirit of God that this was a right thing to do. So she married Charles, and they, in turn, um, adopted three of the people, three of the children that they were ministering to there in Liberia. Nineteen years they were married and did the work of God in Liberia. And then after those 19 years, in 1939... Charles, her husband, passed away. Here she is, all these obstacles of getting to the mission field, praying all night that she would find a way. The Lord finally opening up an avenue for her to um, to be able to go. Having all this success, real success, eternal success, and then the mission organization falls apart. Then she finds a way around that. You know, the guy provides an opportunity and confirms that she's supposed to be married. And then her, her, her husband, after 19 years, dies. And it's just up and down. It's just open door and loss, open door and loss, opportunity and loss. And yet she continues to stay there. She doesn't call it. She doesn't say, oh, this is just too much for me to handle. She realizes that her entire life is being poured out at the feet of Christ. Eventually, in the early 1970s, the Baptist Missionary Organization had kind of heard what she was doing and sent someone out there to check on her and wanted to try to help her, you know, with some support. And so they went out and met her. And this is the re- the response. This is the the written account of when that Um, person from the Baptist Missionary Organization checked on Eliza George. He says, I met Mother George at the Evangelical Industrial Mission deep in the bush at the age of 91. Her ministry was vast. She was almost blind. She walked with a walking stick. She had a large tropical cancer on her leg. And she was still pressing the claims of Christ. This man showed up and found a 91-year-old woman. Cancer on one leg, cane in the other, living deep in the bush with a walking stick, almost blind. And she is still out there telling people the good news of Jesus. She came home several years later to try to um, attend to some of those ailments and was physically unable to go back. And she passed away in 1980 at the at the ripe young age of 100 years old. Talk about living God's purpose with your whole 
life, Eliza George, was a great example. The last person I want to talk to you about was a man named George Lyle. George was, he is the, the, the first African-American missionary ever to leave America and go somewhere else to preach the gospel to, some, uh, to another country. He was born in Virginia in 1750 as in, in enslaved, but as a young child, he was separated and taken to Georgia. He, he continued in the, in, in the working environment of slaves and indentured servants all the way up until 1773 when he heard the message of the gospel and gave his life to Christ, and he was still enslaved out of a desire to quote instruct people of my own color in the word of god unquote lyle began to minister to other african americans in savannah georgia remember this is the deep south this is um, a, a whole lot of racism a whole lot of segregation a whole lot of we don't go there or talk to these kind of people attitude in that time period but his ministry gifts were recognized by his words, his white brethren. And they invited him to preach every few months. They gave him a license as a preacher and eventually gave him a full-on ordination as a minister of the gospel of Christ. And they didn't care what color he was. After... Um, after George's uh, kind of foray into ministry, his slave owner was also named George, but George Sharp. Mr. Sharp recognized the call on his life, and he, um, he was given his freedom to go pursue the call of, of Christ to preach the gospel. And look at the character of this man. George Lyle went back to his former slave owner, George Sharp, and asked him to be a deacon, a leader at the church that he had founded. He stayed with the Sharp family up until George Sharp's death and where some other events happened in the area that gave him the kind of release to move on and to start his mission work. He needed to get to where he was burdened to go. As out in the Caribbean, he really wanted to go and talk to many of the people who were enslaved in Jamaica. So he didn't have the money to get his wife and children there. He had a family. And so he made an arrangement with a British, um, with a British uh, colonel that if that person would help him with the money to get over there, that when he got there, he would work it off as an indentured servant. He'd work off his debt. He borrowed $700. And when he got to Jamaica, he worked two years, manual labor to pay off the debt. That means that he made $350 a year. In that, in that slave work, that indentured servant work, so that he could be sure that he didn't have an outstanding debt because that was the character of the man.
after he paid off the debt, he resumed his work as a minister by preaching in a small house church. That house church eventually grew from, grew from a handful of people to over 350, and they included both black and white believers, which was just a, a great um, accomplishment and very revolutionary at the time. He, um, he was working with organizations that would try to, to you know, lobby for the release of these, uh, these slaves, his fellow um, African-Americans who were enslaved. He worked really hard to try to do that. But eventually, when you uh, start pushing back on the laws of the land, even when they're unjust, uh, the government came at him. And the J- Jamaican government uh, actually arrested him for seditious preaching in 1797. Seditious meaning it was, he was trying to cause people to rebel against the authority and the, and the government that was in control. He was thrown into prison. And he wasn't just thrown into any prison. He was literally chained by his feet to the stocks. And his hands were handcuffed. Not even his wife and children were permitted to come in the jail and see him. And they started a trial. And they worked for a very long time to try to convict him of some wrongdoing. But at the end of the trial, no evil could be, provi- could be proved against him because of the character of that man. And he was acquitted. Before he was arrested, he borrowed some money from um, from a local person to build a church, like build the church chapels. So they could have a, a place to have service. And the government said, well, you haven't repaid that debt yet. And he said, well, I've, I'm working it off as we speak. Like we're, I'm making payment arrangements. And the government said, nope, you're not going to be able to do that. You owe a debt you haven't been able to pay. And they imprisoned him. He was given an opportunity soon after Uh, to take a benefit of what they referred to as the Insolvent Debtors Act that would wipe away his debt. But he refused to do that. He remained in the debtor's prison until he paid off all of the money he, he borrowed to build a church for his fellow men. It took him three years, five months, and ten days to pay off that debt. But he did it because he had the character of a godly man. After leaving prison, Lyle became an itinerant preacher, meaning he just traveled all over Jamaica and um, would preach at all these churches. And he eventually settled in Spanish town and planted a second church, a second Baptist church on the island. And they were supported from funds from the U.S. and the U.K., By 1814, his efforts had produced either directly or indirectly 8,000 conversions to Christ. And he didn't want to be a burden on the churches that even he helped plant, so he supported himself and his family by farming and transporting goods without a wagon or with a wagon and a team of horses. This man had the character that everyone wishes they did. He looked at the cost of serving Jesus and never 
gave it up. This is too hard. I don't want to do this anymore. No, he stuck it all the way through because he knew there was a cost to serving Christ. And his immense character helped him. The Spirit of God inside of him, the convictions that he had helped him pay that price to pour his life out at the feet of Jesus. I don't have time to get into another man named Lot Carey, but let me just read you his highlights. There's a memorial that was made to this man who was also an African-American man who was who was born as a slave in, in a similar time frame and went on actually to Liberia as well to start a ministry. Let me just read you, I'm not going to tell you his whole story, just let me read you his um, his the monument, what it says on his monument. This is a massive monument. It says this, born a slave in Virginia, 1780, removed from Richmond to Africa as a missionary and colonist, 1821 was pastor of the First Baptist Church and an original settler and defender of the colony at Monrovia. He died as the acting governor of Liberia, November 10th, 1828. His life um, was the progressive development of an able intellect and firm, benevolent heart under the influences of freedom and an enlightened Christianity and affords the amplest evidence of the capacity of his race to fill with dignity and usefulness the highest ecclesiastical and political stations. Of a truth, God is no respecter of persons, but hath made one blood all nations of men. On the backside of the monument, it says, Lot carries self-denying, self-sacrificing labors as a self-taught physician, as a missionary and pastor of a church, and finally as governor of the colony, have inscribed his name indelibly, indelibly, on the page of history, not only as one of nature's noblemen, but as an eminent philanthropist and missionary of Jesus Christ. How in the world could he wring one more ounce of anything out of a life that was lived in God's purpose? <clears throat> I'm hoping that when you see these or you're hearing these stories, I invite you to go back and, and look them up yourself. There's videos on them. There's articles about them all over the place. I'm encouraging you to, to, to go back and read them, but more than that, I want you to look at your life. I want you to look at where you're at and say, am I living God's purpose, his full purpose for me? You might be. You might be exactly where he wants you to be. I'm not saying you have to go to you know a foreign country to be a missionary, but Maybe that's something inside some of you. I don't want you to ignore it because of the comfort of America, the comfort of a wealthy, prosperous nation. I don't want you to to, to, abandon, to think, well, I got all this freedom here. Why would I go anywhere else? It, this is not pursuing selfish interests. Lot Carey, his self-denying, self-sacrificing labors is what they identified. If you can sacrifice you, not at the at the for on the you know, for any selfish endeavor, but really ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? Let something in his word grip you. Ask him to grip you with something in his word. Maybe that would not lead to another nation, but maybe that would lead to a business that would fund people going to other nations. Maybe that would lead you to becoming an intercessor and pray all night like Eliza did. 
for people in other nations. Maybe, maybe that is something that, um, maybe there's something that you need to do in your career. Maybe you need to change a career. Maybe you need to um, take a giant step back, evaluate where you are, where you live, and go to a different place. Maybe it's in the States. Maybe it's not. Who knows? What I do know is that the creator of everything, Almighty God, the Christ that you serve, has an assignment for you. I don't want us to be the people who, who, are, who think we're going to heaven. And then we get there and God says, depart from me, I never knew you. What he does say is that at the end, the goal is for God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Look at those words, good and faithful. Are you not by your own standards of goodness, but are you living according to the standards of goodness in Scripture? Do you really know God? Know him by his word, know him by his character, know him by his leading, by his spirit, by the way he communicates through peace and providence. Do you really know him? My guess is most of you do, but for the rest of you, I don't just walk, want you to walk through life and think, ah, I'm good, I'm Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm in. There's a lot of people who are going to go do a whole, they're going to do a whole bunch of things in their life and they're going to say, God, I'm, I'm here. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And they're going to say, what? I cast out demons in your name. I did all this stuff. I preached in your name. And he's going to say, but I don't know you. Do you know him? Because knowing him is to love him. And to love him is to obey him. To obey him means that you have a purpose beyond just hitting the nine to five. You need to be faithful where you are. I'm not saying to quit your job tomorrow. What I am saying is you need to ask the Lord, what is it that you have for me to do? And whatever that is, I'm encouraging you to pour your life out in the service of God and for the love of other people.